All right, would you open those Bibles you brought, hopefully you brought, to Galatians chapter 6. You can see we're almost done with this book. And next week we'll finish up Galatians. We'll finish up the chapter and sort of give an overview of it. And we're done with it before we get into our next study. Broken things. Do you have any around the house? We all do. I was just thinking of my short list of broken items. Now, I have good intentions. One day I'm going to fix them or get them fixed, better yet. Two watches. Probably one just needs a battery. And I've said for months, I'm going to get a battery for that thing. I've got to get that thing fixed. An old camera, a vintage camera that was my father's. It's cool looking. It doesn't work at all. The shutter's frozen. And I've got this really cool 1895 Winchester repeater rifle. It was my grandfather's. He homesteaded a large portion of Laramie County, Wyoming, and settled it with that weapon. Not, not against people, against the animal kingdom. These are things that are, are really cool, and I love the whole idea of restoring broken things. Rather than just buying a new one, to get something fixed, especially if it's cool, if it's old, if it's vintage, I think it's probably better than something new. Now, it'll take time, it'll take energy, it might take some heartache, even some money, but when it's done... I learned to drive in a 1967 four-wheel drive that was my dad's, and it was really cool. The day he gave it to me, but the day he gave it to me, it was so trashed. Years later. But I had so much fun bringing it here and working on it to get it on the road, restoring it. A couple years ago, one of my board members, a good friend of mine, had in his restaurant a 1942 Harley-Davidson. He painted it. He got it looking good, but it didn't run inside. The guts were just trashed. But it looked really good. Well, before he left town, he goes, hey, you know what? I'm taking it out of the restaurant. I want to give it to you. It'll, it'll remind you of your brother. My brother died on a motorcycle similar to it. So when you think, as you're working on this bike and you're fixing it up, you can think of me the brother that God replaced him with, in a sense, because we grew so close in the Lord. And you can honor your brother with it. I, and I, it, was, it was wonderful to me. Now, it's been a couple years. One of these days, it's going to run. <laughs> it's almost finished. You are a fixer-upper. And so am I. You know... We don't come pre-assembled. God buys us, redeems us, and restores us. The creation has fallen. The creation is broken. We're busted. And I love the fact that God can look at us, and here we are, this beat-up old vintage unit, rusting away on the junk pile, and he goes, I can fix that one up. Ooh, I can get that thing running, and, and he'll, she'll be cherry. 
a classic. Rather than, they're a waste of time. I'm not going to spend a moment on them. I'll just go make some new people. And so God restores us. How does he do it? He puts the Holy Spirit within us to give us a power we never had before. Tim Downs, a Christian leader, once said, Watches, cars, and Christians can all look shiny and chromed, but watches won't tick, cars won't run, and Christians won't influence anybody without insides. You need the insides. You need something that goes on deep within, below the surface. And Tim Downs said, for the Christian, that is the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at that last week and this week. We're in a part of Galatians that is the best part. Because the first part is the personal part, chapters 1 and 2, autobiographical. Chapters 3 and 4 are the doctrinal parts. It's biographical of the history of Israel and the doctrinal theological. But the last part, 5 and 6, those chapters are practical. So the first part is theological. This is applicational. This is the kind of stuff we like. However, you have to have the theological before you can make it applicational. And so Paul has done that. And verse 5, he uses the word therefore. That's where the transition begins. And now we're into chapter 6. Let me remind you of, uh, of a, uh, a problem that, that, that Paul is addressing. There seems to have been an accusation in Galatia by false teachers who came in saying, you know, Paul's message of grace and freedom in Christ and liberty, God has made us free, is a dangerous teaching because it can lead to somebody becoming rebellious, unlawful, unrestrained in his passions. And Paul is basically saying, listen, the liberty of faith in Christ won't turn you into a rebel. It'll turn you into a disciple. True freedom in Christ, true spirit-led freedom, will turn you not into a rebel, but a disciple. In fact, when you walk with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're very productive. You bear something. You're fruitful. Chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In other words, as we said last week, the law was given to restrain people from doing wrong things. But when you walk in the Spirit, you produce right things. There's no law against that. There's no need for restraint when that's in place. So Paul's main point, bottom line, keep this in your mind, bottom line, is the real danger isn't the liberty of faith. The real danger is the legalism of religion. That's the real danger. Because legalism can only restrain a person outwardly, temporarily. 
Legalism restrains a person outwardly, but doesn't give them an inward power. And there's a huge difference. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, living in you, dwelling in you, or let's give it a better term, making himself at home in you, gives you a new kind of power to crucify the old nature and surrender to the leading of the Spirit. That's what he mentions here at the, at the end of the chapter. Chapter 5. You can be outwardly disciplined by rules. Here's a list of rules. Keep these rules. Do these things. Don't do these things. And so in keeping a legalistic set of rules, you can be outwardly disciplined. You can be in the military. And you can salute and say, yes, sir, and obey all the orders, and in your heart hate your commanding officer. So you're doing it outwardly, but inwardly you're going, I hate that guy. I'm doing it. I don't want to get court-martialed. I don't want to bear the brunt of the wrath of the military. And so you're told to sit, and you're sitting down on the outside, but you're standing up tall on the inside. So you need something more than just an outward legalism. You need an inward power. And that's the theme here, walking in the Spirit. What did David say? Psalm 51, Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts. You can put on the facade. You can go through all the motions. You can bring the Bible, sing the songs, wear the smile, say, God bless you. Go through all of the motions and have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, the inward stuff. Legalism attempts the impossible. Legalism attempts the impossible, and that is to change the old nature. To get it to conform, to get it to obey. And you can do that temporarily, but the flesh rebels against that. Some of you grew up with rules and regulations, even religiously, and you rebelled against it later on. And so you came to a place where you thought, well, what use is religion? <laughs> That's Paul's point. What use is religion? Well, he says, it has served its purpose. It led us, as a tutor would, to Christ. Now we have a relationship. Now it's something that's more than outward. It's something that is inward, something that is alive. Faith in Christ, that is, having an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, will not lead to carnality, as was accused by some of those in Galatia. No, it won't lead to carnality. It will lead to character, true spiritual character. And how do you see spiritual character? By conduct. It won't lead to carnality. It will lead to character, but the character is seen in conduct. So here's the sequence of events. Here's the sequence of Paul's thinking. Ready? In what we have read last week and where we're going tonight. Here's the sequence. I am free. I've been set free by Jesus Christ. He died on a cross. He set me free from sin and its consequences, but also he set me free from the restraint of legalism, the law of Moses. However, I need help inwardly because I have an old nature pulling at me, wanting to sin, having a bent toward evil. I need something inwardly so that I will obey from the heart. 
Paul says that power is the Holy Spirit living in every believer who, if we allow the Holy Spirit, will lead us, direct us, and then we conform to that. And as we do, we'll bear forth fruit. So as we abide in the Spirit, obeying Christ, we're going to be fruitful believers having victory over sin. As he says in verse 24 of chapter 5, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and its lust. As we do that, surrendering to the Spirit, living victoriously, something's going to happen in our relationship with other people. And Paul is saying this is how practical a life of faith not legalism, but a life of faith is. What it will do is bring you to a point where you're less concerned about yourself and more concerned about others. The magazine world sums up the real world. In the 1950s, there was Life magazine. Later on, there was People magazine. Later on, there was Us magazine. Now there's Self. Interesting digression. Progression, some would say. Life, generally. People, more specifically. Us, very specifically. Self, most specifically. That's the world. That's how the world thinks. We're preoccupied with ourselves. When you walk in the Spirit, you produce fruit. Love, joy, patience, etc. You become less concerned with yourself, more concerned with others. That's maturity. That's spirituality. Now, we get into chapter 6, and we're about to see what that looks like. What does it look like to see somebody full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, less concerned about oneself and more concerned about others? You see it in three ways. How I care, what I bear, and when I share. How I care, what I bear or carry, and when I share. Look at chapter 6. Verse 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's the first. A life of concern for others, walking in the spirit, looking out for each other, is shown in how my attitude is, how I care. But go back, because actually... Um, Verse 26 of chapter 5 should be the beginning of chapter 6. You know, the numbers that you see in your Bible, the 1, 2, 3, and all the verses, they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were added hundreds of years later. And sometimes I believe they made mistakes. They didn't quite pick up the thought. And the thought begins in verse 26. Let us not become conceited. You know what conceited is. That's life, people, us, self. And the next one will be I, no doubt. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now that is all tied to this walking in the spirit business. So, so just go back one more verse and tie it all together. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. It's an ongoing theme in this 
last part of the book of Galatians, walking in the Spirit. Walking not in the flesh, in the Spirit. Being led not by the flesh, being led by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means, first of all, you have a life with purpose. The word for walk is peripateo, to walk around. To, it's a metaphor for a lifestyle. You're walking about, you're walking around, you're consumed with. That is, you think about spiritual things. You care about them. When you get up in the morning, when you live your life during the day, when you go about your business, when you enter into your relationships, how much do you really care about spiritual matters? Do you have to be prodded, pushed, cajoled, reminded? We all need encouragement, but how much does God matter to you? To walk in the Spirit is an idea of my life is consumed with spiritual things. It's a life of purpose spiritually. Second, it means to have a life of progress. To walk denotes I'm going somewhere. I have a goal. I'm moving forward. I'm growing more so that who I am, where I am this year is further along spiritually than who I was and where I was last year. Is there growth? Can it be seen? Is it readily seen? It's a life of purpose. It's a life of progress. Nowhere in the Bible do you read something like, pull up a chair and lounge in the spirit. <laughs> and it's a good thing because a lot of us would love to do that. I'll put it in neutral. God, can I just cruise here for a while? Can I find a verse where it says, veg ye in the spirit? Cruise ye in the spirit? Hang ye in the spirit? No, the idea is walking, moving, making progress, going forward, higher, deeper. It's a passion. Satan would love to slow you down. And here's why. The slower you walk spiritually, the easier you are to pick off. Growing up, I'd go to Disneyland, and there was a time where I was there every month. I knew my way around, didn't need the little map, got the ticket, went in, and I went to the shooting gallery. I loved, and I still love the shooting gallery. The shooting gallery, for us amateurs, we look for the slowest moving ducks. Not the ones that go, foo -foo, just go. Easy to pick off. I'm great at the slow stuff. They're harder to peg the faster they go up and down, the faster they move across the board. You know, spiritually, it's the same way, isn't it? You're making progress. You've got that pace. You're not meandering in the spirit. You're walking. You're going somewhere. You're moving. You're, you're passionate. You're serious about God. Harder for the enemy to get at you. I have a friend who says the Christian life is like riding a bicycle uphill. The moment you stop, you don't go forward and you don't stay still. You go backward. So we want to walk with purpose and progress in our lives. Spiritual purpose, spiritual progress. And that will be seen in relationships if we're walking in the Spirit. It will be shown, first of all, by how we care. And that's what verse 1 is all about of chapter 6 and verse 26 of chapter 5. Brethren, 
If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, mark that, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The Judaizers, you know who they are by now, don't you? I've used it every single week in Galatians. Those were the false teachers that came into Galatia and said, you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, and pushing this legalistic religious scam. The Judaizers like the Pharisees before them, were good at finger-pointing. They could find every bad thing in a person's life. You're not doing that right. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. They were great at picking out problems in people's lives, and their heart was not restoration but condemnation. This was what they did all day long. Just pointed the finger instead of this. And there's a big difference between this and this. Paul is saying, this is what we need to do. Open arms, embracing, not this. There's a time for that, but if a brother is overtaken in a trespass, restore. That's the spirit of Christ. You see by how much a person cares. I uh, got a book out of my library that I wanted to show you tonight. It's in the Leadership Library. It's a series of books for leaders called Well-Intentioned Dragons. Isn't that a great title? Well-Intentioned Dragons. Ministering to problem people in the church. Right on the, the front leaf, it says, Well-Intentioned Dragons are the sincere, well-meaning saints who leave ulcers, strained relationships, and hard feelings in their wake. They don't intend to be difficult. They don't consciously plot the destruction but for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. I think the Judaizers would be well-intentioned dragons. Now, the author, Marshall Shelley, and I'm only going to read a little section, says, there are just a few, these are just a few of the dragons that are encountered in a church. There are many others too numerous to mention in detail. Number one, the busybody. The busybody is one who enjoys telling others how to do their jobs in the church. Number two, the sniper. The sniper is one who avoids face-to-face -face conflict but picks off leaders and Christians with pot shots and private conversations, such as the cryptic, be sure and pray for so-and-so, he's got some problems, you know. That's the sniper. Pot shots. Number three, the bookkeeper. This is one who keeps written record of everything a leader does that isn't in the spirit of Christ. Fourth, the merchant of muck. <laughs> the merchant of muck is one who breeds dissatisfaction by attracting others who know that he's more than willing to listen to and elaborate on things that are wrong in people's lives. And then there is the legalist whose list of absolutes stretches from how many verses should be sung in a hymn, etc., etc. And Shelley says any of these can inhabit any given congregation. You know that the church is famous for shooting its wounded rather than salvaging its wounded? Oh, we are good at saying, that's bad, that person's wrong, bye. And not restoring Listen to this article. I think it sums it up best. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. 
The bar is an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace. Escape rather than reality, but it is accepting. It is an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, says this author, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. The Galatian church missed it. The Judaizers, with their legalistic push, were finger pointers, not those who would restore. Theirs was condemnation. Paul's was restoration. And so he says, Restore such a one. The word restore, kathartizo, means to mend something torn, to heal something broken. It was a word that was often used of sewing together nets, fishing nets that had ripped, or setting a bone in a body that had fractured, had broken, a fallen brother or sister overtaken by a sin. is like a broken bone in our body. needs healing. needs attention. needs care. And you know, if you have a broken bone, you don't want just anybody to touch it. And you don't need the merchant of muck touching it. You don't need the sniper touching it. You need somebody who will care and love and seek to restore. Now, to restore somebody, there are some prerequisites. Number one, you have to be saved. For he says, brethren, if somebody's overtaken, you take a sinning brother, not to the secular world, you keep them in the church and minister to them. Prerequisite, you need to be saved. Number two, you have to be spiritual. You know what it says? If somebody's overtaken, it didn't say, you who are carnal, you who are judgmental, you who are hypercritical, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Well, how can you tell a spiritual person? Number one, a spiritual person is a salvaging person. He wants to restore. Number two, a spiritual person is a sensitive person. He's, he does it in the spirit of meekness, considering himself, lest he is also tempted. Here's a picture I want to plant in your mind. Remember when Jesus, on the um, night he was betrayed, the Last Supper, took his disciples, they were all at the dinner table, and he took a basin of water and a towel, and what did he do with it? He washed their feet, and he said it's a spiritual analogy. You've been washed all over. You don't need to be rebathed. You just need your feet clean. You walk around in the world and you get dirty. And when you walk around in the world and you get dirty, you need to have your feet cleaned. It's a beautiful picture of the church. We are to wash each other's feet. We are to heal each other's brokenness. But be careful how you wash one another's feet. You can do it a number of ways. You could, you could burn them. You could use scalding hot water, you stinking sinner. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. Give me that foot. Ah! 
with your fiery hot words. I know some people that don't even use water. They scrape the dirt off. Dry, clean feet. Others make the water really cold. They're aloof and they're formal. There's no intimacy, no relationship. Do it gently, it says. Restore each other gently. There was a woman caught in adultery. Those who were really concerned about the law brought this woman to Jesus. And, and you know the story. The law says she should be stoned. The law says she should be killed. Kill her. Stone her to death. That's how illegal... See, that's why legalism can never restore a person. That's its attitude. It's this. It's the finger pointing. Now Jesus said, okay, great. Whoever never committed a sin here, you, you throw that rock first. We'll watch. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And Jesus said, where are your accusers, woman? I have none, sir. Neither do I condemn thee. But go and sin no more. Different approach, isn't it? Different way of dealing with somebody who had sinned. Now, let me give you an example of restoration, can I? So you, know, you have a biblical example of restoring somebody who has sinned in the midst, overtaken with a fault. Shows you the attitude of how much you care. The church at Corinth had somebody inside their church assembly who was committing incest. And the church winked at it. Oh, well, whatever, man. You know, we're all in grace and love. Now, Paul, in that first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, says, hey, I hear there's somebody among you who's committing incense and is unrepentant. So he said, he said, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, i.e., disfellowship an unrepentant, sinning person. They did. He writes 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, he refers to the disfellowship of this person. And he says, now, because this person has repented, has shown sincerity, you ought now to forgive and comfort. Because enough is enough. The majority has gathered together and disfellowshipped him. He said, you need to do this lest that person be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Great. Church discipline, disfellowship, absolutely appropriate for somebody who claims to be a brother or sister but is unrepentant, living in sin. But when there is repentance, don't keep them out there. Now bring them back. Now comfort them. Now forgive them. Now restore them. Here we have the principle. First and second Corinthians, we have the example. That's how ministry is. You know, some of my best ministry isn't during the Bible study. It's afterwards. When I get to meet with people, put a hand on somebody. And somebody says, man, I'm having a hard time. And I say, can I pray for you? And I, I'll do that even at Starbucks sometimes. And it'll, it'll throw people off guard. Hey, can I pray for you? Here? After a latte? 
well, sure, man, thanks a latte. No, they don't say that. But... See, now you get insight into my warped brain. Ministry to people involves care. In fact, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And so Paul says, show it by how much you care, how you care for one another. Restore in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now that's, that's first of all. When you're filled with the spirit, you're in the church body, in your relationships, that control of the spirit is seen by how you care. Number two, it is seen by what you bear. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load." Look back in verse 2 at the word burdens. You see that word? The word is baros in the Greek. It means an extra heavy weight that requires the distribution among many so that it can be carried. Sometimes people go through life, and life isn't normal. Days aren't normal. There are losses. There is pain. There are diseases. There are deaths, there are temptations, there are habits, there are addictions. There are problems we face because not not that we have a new nature, but we still have the old nature, and it fights the new nature. And there are some days, some weeks, some months, some seasons where that flesh gets a grip. It's a burden. In fact, it could be this burden that has caused the brother to fall. It could be an attitude, it could be a habit, an addiction of some kind, and it's caused that brother to be overtaken by the fault, the trespass, and requires the restoration by a spiritual, sensitive brother or sister. That's the word, an extra heavy weight that's hard to carry. It's in the present tense. That is, continually, habitually, as a manner of life among your relationships, bear one another's baros, extra heavy weights. Here's the point. A restoring Christian, a loving Christian, a Christian filled with the Spirit of God, doesn't just pick somebody up, dust them off, and say, bye-bye. Leave you alone now. But there is now this process of Discipleship, we would say, accountability, speaking into that person's life, restoring that person, bearing that burden, maybe over a period of time because they're going to break underneath the weight of it. In fact, have you noticed that often Satan's greatest temptations come immediately after a victory? We get restored, we get picked up. If we get left alone, the hammer falls again. Satan looks for an opportune time like he did with Christ. So it requires this, this habitual, continually bearing of one another's burdens. Basically said, let's make it easy. Be the body of Christ. That's all. 
the church, the body of Christ, ought to just be the body of Christ. Paul said we're a body with many members. When you get a broken bone, you give attention to the broken bone. You use a crutch. The rest of the body ministers to it. Listen to this uh, text out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, there should be no division in the body, but the members, that's us, should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Dr. Leonard Kamen for 30 years has studied behaviors of human beings and depression. He said, the human being is the only species that cannot survive alone, but requires other human beings, or else that species will die. And he said this, a phone call, just a simple phone call to a depressed person, or a 10-minute visit periodically, is better than 24-hour nursing care. Love, compassion, healing. We need each other. I know we needle each other sometimes, but we need each other as the body. Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, his companion can help him up, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they can stay warm, but you can't be warm alone. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In its context, Solomon is speaking of friendships, companionship, relationships. The more relationships you have in your life where you're honest and authentic, the stronger you will be. The better off you will be in weathering the storms of life. The more isolated you are, the worse off you become, and the more we are robbed as the body of Christ. So, may God raise up restorers, restorers, love the body of Christ. It will be seen in these things, how you care, what you bear, those extra heavy loads. Now, notice something about bearing each other's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. In verse 3, he says, you got to bear the burden with humility, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I, this has got to be a slam against the Judaizers, don't you think? They thought they were really cool, really spiritual. Paul says they're nothing. The worst form of pride is spiritual pride. You know that. Spiritual pride pushes a person down rather than lifts them up, looks down, gets down, points down, instead of lifting up. Bear one another's burdens with humility. Number two, bear one another's burdens with integrity. Verse four, let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In other words, don't compare yourself to how you're doing versus somebody else who's not growing as fast as you are. Number three, you ought to bear each other's burdens with responsibility. Verse five, for each one shall bear his own load. You go, no, wait a minute, Skip. This sounds like a contradiction. 
Bear one another's burdens. You better bear your own load. What does he mean? Well, the word burden, baros, extra heavy load that requires the weight distribution among many others. The word here for load, the second word in that last little verse, means quite literally a soldier's backpack. Something easily manageable. The stuff you encounter on a daily basis that's easily manageable. You get up, respond to the alarm clock, hop in the shower, put gas in the car, pay your bills, be responsible at work, be fruitful and responsible, and mature in your relationships. Those are things we all have to carry. We carry our own load. Though we are called to bear one another's heavy, extra heavy burdens that sometimes require more than one to carry, those burdens cannot keep you from neglecting your own backpack. Let's say my car breaks down and I have to have my neighbor take my son to school. Well, he's old enough to drive, but let's say it's a while back. It's nice that he's offering to do that, and I'll let him do that. I really need him to do that, but he can't become responsible for all the fatherly duties in my life. That's my load, not his load. And so we have to be careful in extending love to one another that we don't neglect our own load. Ministers are notorious for this. Ministers' families, I've watched it for years. I've watched after years of ministry, some pastors' families fall apart in shambles. You know why? They're so busy tending to the emergencies, the needs, the extra heavy weights of everybody else, they neglect the backpack. And so the cobbler's children have no shoes. He's the shoemaker, but the kids don't have shoes. They don't get the attention. They don't get the counsel. They don't get the love. They don't get the ministry. And so that's the principle. Everybody bears his own load. Then, beginning in verse 6, this love, this walking in the Spirit, and we'll close with this, is seen when we share. Let him who is taught in the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary in well-doing or doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, you see that verse, verse 6, where it says, Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches? Typically, normally, if you read commentaries or listen to people expound on this, it is usually applied as, don't forget to pay your preacher. He's giving the word. He's sharing the word. You need to share back with him and minister to him materially. In fact, Sebastian, you have it in the NIV, or the NLT, don't you, New Living Translation? What does it say? Those who are taught in the word of God should help their teachers by paying them. That is the typical, traditional interpretation. Now, that is a biblical principle. 
Paul said in Corinthians, anybody who preaches the gospel should live from the gospel. If we've sown to you spiritual things, what's the big deal, said Paul, if we reap some of your material things? However, it's hard for me to believe in the context of what he's talking about that that's what it means. Since the context is loving the brethren, maintaining relationships, and restoring a fallen brother, it just doesn't seem like Paul to just kind of become ADD all of a sudden and talk about restoration love and say, oh, by the way, pay that preacher of yours. And I'm coming to town next week, by the way. And so look at it again. Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. I think there's a flow of the context. The context is you're teaching somebody, okay? Here's somebody who has fallen. You demonstrate your love by how much you care. You care for them. You're concerned about them. By what you bear, their extra heavy load, their burden, you disciple them. And in that process, you're teaching them the word. They share back with you the word koinonia, fellowship. They exchange a fellowship of all good things, agathos in the Greek, agathos, which I think is as you teach them, as you train them, as you bear the load, they're going to become mature. The payoff of restoration is maturation. They become spiritually grown up. And here's the flow. When a sensitive, salvaging believer restores a sinning, struggling believer, that sinning, struggling believer matures to the point where he or she becomes a spiritual, salvaging believer. They're maturing. They're growing up. They're sharing back all good things. That's the context, and that's what I believe the meaning to be. John said, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. That's the payoff for any teacher, any discipler, anyone who would restore somebody who has fallen. No greater joy. I won't mention a name, but it's somebody in our fellowship who we had to discipline several years ago for an offense to the body of Christ. Something that he did, that he knew he did, and he was restored. Not only was he restored back into fellowship after making good what he had done wrong in the church, but he has become now a restorer of other people who have fallen. And there's no better one than this guy, because he walked through the process of being accused, repentance, restoration. Now he himself is sharing an all good thing and ministering to those of us who are teaching the body of Christ. It's beautiful. It's full circle. Oh, we're out of time. I want to be faithful to the time. I'm a slave to the law of time. But I'll give you a teaser because it really finishes out the thought. There's a law of reaping and sowing, reaping to the flesh or sowing to the flesh and reaping of it, sowing to the spirit and reaping of it. Same context, same context. When you and I are involved in caring and bearing and sharing, discipling, restoring, 
Though, like a farmer, it's hard to sow those seeds because you don't see a payoff right away. You keep doing it, and the more you sow, the more harvest you're going to see back. But if you reap to the flesh and you think about yourself only, you're going to reap corruption. That's the context of the reaping and sowing, and we'll finish that thought next week and finish the book next week.